You're listening to Conversations with a Musicologist with me, Alex Burns. Episode 4, Strings and Voices. This episode includes an update from the German-speaking Musical Groats Project with German specialist Freya Riding, plus an exclusive interview with award-winning cellist Tom Pickles about all things cellos and an exciting concert that he has coming up. So for this podcast, I'm joined by the very same German specialist Freya Riding to talk all things German, including the music of St Hildegard von Bingen and December's instalment of our German-speaking musical greats project. So thanks for joining me again, Freya. Let's talk about December's composer of the month, St Hildegard. So, why her? I chose St Hildegard because I really, really like how she writes for um, a vocal ensemble. I think her vocal works are really, um, really quite beautiful and they really complement the other works that we've chosen for the other composers of this project. Yeah, definitely, because I think quite a lot of the other composers that we're looking at are based around orchestral music. So I found this month really interesting to look into vocal works. I think it's a great complement to the rest of the this project we're doing. And it actually posed um, a real big task for both of us for some extra translations for these blogs, as we had to tackle not only modern German for you, but also Latin and old German for me as well. So how have you found these extra layers of translation? I found these extra layers really challenging, particularly as I'm very unfamiliar with old German. Um, I've decided to approach these translations using modern German as an approximation of how they would sound if they were to be used today. Yeah, I think that's probably a really good way to approach it as well, especially you know if you're unsure of old German. But the purpose of this project really is to to be able to have you know modern German so people can actually read it. So I think that was a really good decision. I found the Latin uh, quite difficult to pin down actually because Saint Hildegard was known for writing words kind of off the top of her head, creating like a sort of divine stream of consciousness. Um, And this meant that her Latin often surpassed common grammatical conventions. So basically it was really hard to read a lot of it. Um, But what is clear is that a lot of her words represented nature and humanity and fertility. Um, Is this something that you noticed as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, For example, in O Frondens Virgia, this translated into German as O Blooming Branch, um, sort of to uh, represent the fertility of the Virgin Mary. I found it really interesting how she combines this natural imagery with um, also sort of more biblical um, texts. Yeah, and I mean, when she was alive, and and, I mean, now when we remember her, she was known as a polymath, which kind of explains her extensive works in other fields like um, medicine and and kind of botany and stuff like that. Um, And so because of that, have you listened to her music in a different way? Would you say? Yeah, I'd definitely say so. I think it's really interesting listening to these works, knowing that they would have been used for worship. And also is there works that I probably wouldn't listen to otherwise. I would be really interested to listen to them live and hear how they sound in a church or a cathedral setting. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that would be absolutely beautiful to hear, like in a big cathedral, some some of these kind of 10-part vocal chants would be absolutely incredible to hear live. I mean, it's not something I particularly would listen to. I've listened to her kind of on and off over the last few years. I had a friend that did a PhD on St Hildegard, so I was kind of forced to listen to her for a while, but I really enjoyed it. It's, 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 it's really interesting music and has a real kind of deep layer of 
kind of religion and other stuff going on in it. Um, and what's been great about this month is that because of the way the dates have lined up, we've been able to cover five works, which Freya's translated two of these. And it's been a real eye-opener, eye really, for this groundbreaking music of St Hildegard. Um, um, but so next month, we'll be looking into the Viennese composer Johann Strauss II and his eclectic range of orchestral music, including the famous Blue Danube Waltz. Um, are you looking forward to this next challenge? Very much so. Um, not only am I very familiar with both of these works, I've played them in orchestras, but I also really, I love Johann Strauss. I think the lack of Latin will make it a far easier uh, month to approach translation-wise. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm quite glad the Latin's going to be leaving us for <laughs> again. Um, and so Freya will be back with me next month to talk all things Strauss and how we're going to approach the writing about Ruth Schoenthal for February's instalment of the German-speaking Musical Greats Project. Also joining me on this month's podcast is award-winning cellist Tom Pickles. I caught up with him to talk about cello repertoire, programming, concerts and more. So joining me on today's podcast is award-winning Sheffield-based cellist Tom Pickles. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So I think for the listeners of this podcast, I'd be really interested to know, you know, your kind of musical training as a cellist. Where did it all begin? I started learning first and foremost... Uh, with the music service in Sheffield. This was back in 2005, I think, or thereabouts. And um, I really enjoyed my lessons. I learned in Sheffield from the age of eight till 12. And I was actually a student at Sheffield Music Academy in the very first year it was set up in 2006, I think it was, around about that time. Um, I spent one year learning with them. And after that, I went on to St. Mary's Music School in Edinburgh, which is Scotland's specialist music school. I was there for five years um, and I left in 2012. Um, after that, I decided not to go to Conservatoire for various reasons, which I think we'll probably touch on later. I went to do a music degree instead, and that was at the University of London, Goldsmiths College, where I did all kinds of different cello-related activities, lots of improvising, session work, playing in bands, studio work, uh, working with found sound, making sonic art compositions and things like that. So it was a really uh, varied degree. Um, quite different from my time at school for various reasons. And having done all of that, I decided that it was time to focus on getting good at the cello again. So I've just completed my master's degree at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, where I've been studying with Matthew Sharp. I just finished um, in September, just gone, managed to graduate with distinction, which Brilliant. I was very pleased about. So yeah, that's where I'm at now. I just finished my postgrad a few months ago out in the big bad world. Brilliant. So like you said, when you were at Goldsmiths, you did like a real range of different things. So what was it that kind of brought you back to the love of the cello for when you went to Conservatoire? I think it was probably the experience of finishing my degree and getting that out of the way and putting that behind me and thinking a bit more about what I wanted to do with my life. University is quite overwhelming. I think most people find it. So finishing off, uh, thinking a bit more about what my goals were, what I wanted to achieve, it became clear that I really wanted to become as good as I possibly could at playing the cello so I could um, touch as many people with it as possible. And 
Yeah, I, yeah. I really relate to that because, I mean, I was the same. When I finished my degree at the University of Sheffield, I did music as well. Um, I had to really think about what I wanted to do next and I wasn't sure, really. I knew I wanted to do writing, so I went on and did an MA in musicology. But I had the same kind of worries, I think, at the end of my degree. I tried to do a varied amount of things. I knew I wasn't good enough at performance to go to a conservatoire. So how did you find that transition? Because I went from writing-based to writing-based. You went from kind of a real mix to performance-based. How did you find the, that kind of move? It was a bit tough at first, to be honest. Um, I started up in the hours I was practicing, but because I'd not been practicing that much, my focus was very poor. So I um, was kind of running myself into the ground, playing the same phrase for hours on end without really knowing how to improve it. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit tough. It was kind of a fraught period of my life, but I felt pretty clear about wanting to start performing more again, working on my technique, learning new pieces. Um, and, you know, there were as many good days as bad, so I knew it would come good. It was actually meeting my teacher, Matthew Sharp, that was really revelatory. Mm -hmm. He um, helped encourage me not to play to please other people or to be approved, but play in a way that was meaningful to me, that I had ownership of. Um, so there was actually a gap of about six months from finishing at Goldsmiths before I started having any lessons. And That's quite a long time. Yeah, it was. I mean, in hindsight, it would have been good to start looking for teachers earlier on. but <laughs> Maybe. <yeah. laughs> anyway, Matthew came along at a really good time for me. So once I started learning with him, started enjoying it much, much more. Yeah. I felt like I was saying more personal things with my playing. So, yeah, the enjoyment just climbed from there. Oh, that's really interesting. Did you do any kind of really memorable concerts or projects while you were at um, the Conservatoire? Uh, one thing that comes to mind straight away is my first full-length evening recital. So that was maybe 18 months ago now. A little place called Shipston on Star Music Society. Um, played some really nice music. It was a really appreciative audience. And it was also one of the first times that I swallowed my fear and actually properly engaged with the audience. I spoke to them, told them why I was excited to be playing this music, um, why it was meaningful for me. And... I think it was quite a special evening because it seemed to go down really well and yeah I felt like it was a big step for me doing a full-length concert playing in every single item so that was cool. Um, this last academic year just gone I also took part in a new training scheme for instrumentalists that's been set up by Birmingham Contemporary Music Group it's called mm. The Next Scheme um, so that's quite an intensive one-year training program where you have workshops and masterclasses with the visiting musicians that BCMG has come in to work with them. So that included people such as Rebecca Saunders, Brian Ferniehoe, members of Ensemble Court Circuit from Paris. So loads of real high flyers from the contemporary music world. Uh, masterclasses and workshops with them, lots of different concerts, traveling around the UK, um, playing in lots of different places, lots of hardcore contemporary repertoire which um, was quite a new experience for me, but one that I think I got a lot from. And Great. yeah, it feels like a good achievement that I managed to go through that and come out pretty much unscathed. So, yeah, that, yeah sounds, good. that sounds really interesting. Uh, contemporary music is, is um, I find a scene that is getting bigger and bigger as time goes on, people getting more and more interested in it. Um, did you get quite a lot of people coming to see concerts and stuff with contemporary music? Yeah, when we first started, um, it was the first year that the scheme had been running, so we were trying to kind of build its reputation and grow an audience. So it definitely grew over the course of the year. There were more and more people that became interested. 
And yeah, by the end, we were pretty much packed out in um, the CBSO Centre in Birmingham. So wow. it definitely grew over the course of the year. I think it's going from strength to strength now as well. Now it's in its second year. So. Oh, great. That sounds really interesting. A really great kind of initiative and, and scheme for people to be able to go to and hear some contemporary music, really. Um, did you play any concertos or anything like that when you were... Well, any time during your training? Yeah, there's been a few. So... I luckily managed to win the concerto competition at St. Mary's quite a long time ago now, nearly 10 years. Wow. Uh, so that was playing the Haydn C major cello concerto, which pretty much every cellist plays. It's a classic, you can't yeah, lie. It's you a can't classic. Get away from it. <laughs> so I remember that being really terrifying, actually. <laughs> but it was good to get it under my belt. I feel like I learned a lot from the process of preparing it. Um, Sitting in front of an orchestra is quite a different kettle of fish to playing with a pianist. You need to project a lot more and your ideas have got to be really crystal clear to come across to the audience. So I've got a question about that idea about projection, because as a brass player, projection to me means we kind of we blow from more inside and we can make a louder, wider sound. How do you project on a string instrument? What's the kind of technique that you have to do for that? There's a few things that come to mind. Um, the main one is probably putting the bow a bit nearer to the bridge. Mm -hmm. uh, where the string has more tension so it um, projects and cuts through more. Um, you can do different things with the bow speed, so even if you're not necessarily making a louder sound or a denser sound, you're sending the sound further, if that makes sense. Um, articulation as well, so how you treat the front of the note, whether it's got more front and a bit more decay, or even with the vibrato as well, there are a lot of different parameters with string playing, which is partly what makes it so difficult to master. Mm. Uh, but, but vibrato is a big one. Like with opera singers, that's how opera vibrato developed, I think, from singers needing to project across an orchestra. So mm. it's a little bit similar with strings. If you can use your vibrato in quite a considered way, highlight the note that you think is the most uh, important or interesting in the phrase and use your vibrato accordingly to make sure that the audience gets that feeling. Great. I honestly didn't know any of that because as a brass player, we're just a bit ignorant, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I mean, is there, with with that in mind, is there any kind of pieces that you really would like to play in the future? Concertos or not concertos, anything really for cello? At some point, I'm going to have to learn the Vorjak concerto. I'm I mean, that is a, a classic. I'm <laughs> a bit ashamed to admit that I finished my master's and haven't learned it. I mean, I've read through it, of course, but... Um, I can imagine hopefully one day playing that with an orchestra at some point. That will be another good milestone for me. Um, on more of a small scale, I'm dying to play The Sweet Italienne by Stravinsky. Mm. Uh, it's such a delightful piece, uh, really fresh sounding. The second movement, the serenata, is absolutely gorgeous as well. Loads of unresolved tension. And yeah, space for some really, really daringly quiet playing, I think. So I think that's next. Yeah, that's going to come soon. So do you prefer playing in an orchestra, like a really big orchestra playing big orchestral works, or do you prefer playing in like small chamber groups and playing some more intimate repertoire, or do you not mind? I would have to say I do prefer chamber music. There's more opportunity for your personality and your voice to come through, I think. And there's so much wonderful repertoire to explore. Um, Anything in particular? This last year I was lucky enough to play the Tchaikovsky Piano Trio, which is a funny oh. enough quite a big symphonic work in its own way, but... Really gorgeous, highly romantic, obviously. So, yeah, loads of great tunes. The piano part for that is monstrous, it is, isn't it? It's yeah. huge. A lot of notes. A lot of notes. <laughs> it's brilliant, though. I, I really like that work as well. Recently, I've been listening to Schubert's Trout a lot as well, that quintet. I love that. Mm -hmm. I, I had that on last night. I absolutely love it. Just when chamber music comes to mind, I think about that. 
Is any composers in particular you really like performing? All of the Brahms chamber music with piano is pretty much a masterpiece, I think. I've not heard any of it that I don't really enjoy. Mm. Really, really beautiful. Especially the B major. I think hopefully we're going to be playing that B major trio, uh, that B major trio pretty soon. So Great. Yeah, especially that slow movement. What a highlight. So do you have any uh, up and coming concerts? There's a few. Yeah. One big one that I've been quite looking forward to is uh, a recital in Sheffield that's going to be uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. That's with my piano duo partner, Roman Kozhikov, in Sheffield, my home city. So that'll be a really exciting one, playing some really good music. Great. So for that concert, you're playing um, some Frank Bridge. Is that right? Yeah, I absolutely love it, actually. It's four short pieces. I think they can be played for piano and violin or cello. I don't know um, which they were written for. They're very charming, almost quite, well, very English seeming, I think. Lots of really, really nice melodies, but never superficial, even though they're in a very kind of miniature form, each piece mm. only two or three minutes. Mm. Um, they do have a real depth of emotions. Really, really charming music. Yeah, some of my favourite things to play. I could play it every day for mm. the rest of my life. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that. I had to listen to the, so I didn't know them very well. Um, I listened to them. I really enjoyed them. I thought it was, yeah, like you said, it was really charming, actually. The they music. do seem quite English in a way, don't they? In a way that's quite hard to quantify. Yeah, it's like that quintessentially British thing you get from composers like Vaughan Williams, Elgar, Bridge Backs and people like that. I, I, I know what you mean, but I wouldn't be able to tell you why. <laughs> it just, maybe the folk yeah. element of it, potentially. I think it's quite valuable for us to have, I think, because... Uh, society in Britain has changed so much since the time that music was written, around about the turn of the century, early 1900s. Um, yeah, so it almost helps us hop back, I think, to where three or four generations ago um, our ancestors' lives would have been like. I just find it very evocative, very mm. interesting. So. Well, I look forward to that. And, and kind of a, maybe opposing that, you've got some James Macmillan as well in there. Yeah, that's quite an emotional piece. Um, he's no Macmillan, isn't he, for a lot of his sacred style work almost mm. almost like church music um and this kind of does follow that tradition it's called kiss on woods and it's based on one of the psalms which um i think it's an easter service where they reveal the wood of the cross from behind a curtain and then the members of the congregation are invited up to kiss the wood of the cross oh. um so it's quite deeply religious in its subject matter and uh, the psalm has kind of been chopped up and digested by Macmillan, um, almost to the point where it's not quite recognisable. But it's very vocal style writing with the ornamentation, uh, some of the slides between notes that he has. It, you could almost imagine it being sung by a cantor in a church. Mm. Um, it's a very loud opening, almost quite brutal sounding. And then it kind of almost dissipates into quite an angelic sound world. Um, almost ecstatic, but in a sense of love for Christ or whatever it is um, that you might be feeling love for, whether you're religious or not. So it's quite an exciting piece, quite exhausting as well, quite emotionally exhausting to play. Mm, I can imagine. Is there a particular reason you chose that piece? Or did it just kind of fit really nicely with the programme you already had? I found it very moving when I first came across it. And it wasn't really like anything I'd ever heard written for cello and piano. The textures are quite interesting when both the instruments are playing very high in the register. Um, it's very kind of stop-start as well. Later on, maybe three or four bars are playing and then maybe five bars of silence before another phrase is played. Mm. And I was just really taken with how he manages to make that sound convincing and not completely fragmentary. 
I think it's a very interesting piece. Mm, great. And so the other two composers that you're going to be playing at this concert are Beethoven and Rachmaninoff. So what I'm interested in is how did you how do you program like a recital like this? How do you go about? Do you have one piece and build around it? Do you go in with a theme? Is was there anything in particular you did to build this program up? We didn't center it around any particular theme per se. Um, you kind of collect pieces as you go along. So the bridge I've been playing for quite a number of years now, played that quite a few times, and thought it would be a really nice way to open the programme, kind of get people settled in, because it's not too challenging. People like it, it makes people smile. Um, with regard to Beethoven, it's obviously his 250th year now. Yep. So all the more excuse to programme him. <laughs> and And what Beethoven is it that you're playing? So it's the sonata in F, Opus 5, number 1, the first cello sonata, which is actually quite often neglected, I think. People don't tend to program it. People obviously know the A major, Opus 69, that's probably the most famous one. And the Opus 5, number 2, G minor, that's much more often played, I think, on the whole than number 1 in F major. For some reason, it just seemed to speak to me. Um, It's very elegant music a lot of the time it's got almost new ideas hitting the page every few bars it doesn't really follow a traditional sonata form especially in the first movements there's loads of extra themes excursions to distant keys all the kind of hallmarks of Beethoven's late style in this very early work which he wrote in his mid-20s around about my sort of age it has that feeling of young man's music in a way you can almost hear the inspiration that was going on in his head all the different ideas so it just seemed to speak to me at the point in life mm. I was at when I came to learn it. So no, it so seemed to make sense to program it. Good as reason as any to program something yeah. for sure. And so the other piece you're playing is a Rachmaninoff piece. What's Which one is the that? The Rachmaninoff cello sonata. The one. <laughs> yeah, what a treat. It's full of great tunes. Um, lots of notes in the piano as well. A bit like the Tchaikovsky tree we were just talking about. Um, another really big work as well. About 35 minutes. So quite a big undertaking. Quite exhausting to play. Um, but it's full of all the, I guess you could call it sentimentality, but that makes it sound trite. Just all the gorgeous harmonies and wonderful mm. melodic tones, really long, almost vocal phrases that are hallmarks of Rachmaninoff. Um, yeah, it's been a delight to learn. That's the piece in the programme that I've actually come to learn latest of all. That's been quite a new addition to my mm. repertoire. So when I perform it, it still has that feeling of excitement I guess being open to possibilities you know there's still little bits of my interpretation that mm. were open to be firmly fixed so yeah a really gorgeous piece one of the best I think one of the best cello sonatas great and so how did you and Roman kind of come to be partners for recitals yeah that's a good question actually so there are lots of great pianists in Birmingham the keyboard department is really really strong at the conservatoire and I tried playing with a few different people. Um, yeah, I think it's important to try establishing relationships with different pianists rather than just having all your eggs in one basket because you never know if anybody's going to be unavailable for whatever reason. And we've been playing in trio together. So we were playing with a violinist from South Africa called Jeffrey Armstrong, Roman on piano and myself on cello. So that's how we kind of came together playing chamber music. And I just sort of asked him off the cuff, would you be up for playing some concerts together just as a duo? Kind of expecting him to say, oh, I'm too busy or don't really fancy it or whatever, but he was up for it. So, um, yeah, and that was only about a year ago. So we're still quite in the early days of playing together. 
Um, but yeah, so it just came from playing chamber music together and we just kind of segued into doing duo. So Oh, that's nice. Like that. So at least you, you kind of already knew each other. So it was quite a familiar kind of partnership. It was not, you're not going in kind of cold turkey with someone. You, you know how he plays and he knows how you play. Yeah, so I guess it's right. just establishing that yeah. when you're playing not trio music, <laughs> I guess. So um, how often do you guys play together? I mean, like in terms of rehearsals for stuff, do you take quite a long time or do you um, bash through <clears throat> stuff really quickly? We're both quite busy. We both kind of lead our own schedules a lot of the time and doing different things. And Roman performs a lot in lots of different places. He's quite a fully formed artist in many ways. He has quite a busy concert schedule. So normally if we have a concert coming up, we might sort of remind ourselves there's a concert coming uh, nearish the time maybe have a couple of two-hour rehearsals where we bash through things. Um, still working on quite simple things in many ways, thinking about how you would sing the music to make it sound like it makes sense, mm. what's going on in the harmony, the dialogue between the two of us and stuff. Um, but we work quite intensely, so only a few rehearsals quite near the concert. Having said that, that's because we've been playing this programme for quite a while now, we're quite familiar with it. So I'd imagine as we're coming to the end of a cycle of this, sort of program when we start learning new things there probably will be a bit more time spent sitting inside the music working out what we think it's all about and stuff absolutely. so it does depend really how how well we know the repertoire yeah absolutely i mean we're all really excited for this concert i i am I'm, i i would love rachmaninoff he's one of my favorite composers rachmaninoff i just you know no one will ever beat marla for me but rachmaninoff does come close in fairness he's the man, isn't he? he is he's he is the man um so if you want to come and see tom and roman play some incredible, lush, romantic and not so romantic music uh, in Sheffield. It'll be on Friday the 24th of January at St Andrew's URC on Upper Hanover Way in Sheffield. Um, tickets can be bought on the Sheffield Music Academy website um, and it's an absolute bargain, to be honest, to come to this concert and I would highly recommend to come. I'll be there. Tom will obviously be there. I'd be surprised if he's not there. Um, and so thank you so much for coming on, Tom. It's been lovely to no speak problem. to you. No problem. It's been a treat. Thank Thanks. you very much. I'd like to thank Tom Pickles and Freya Riding for joining me on today's podcast, Ross Davidson for mastering the podcast, and Ben Gaunt for composing the brand new Classical Alex Burns jingle. You've been listening to episode four of Conversations with a Musicologist. Keep up to date with the Classical Alex Burns 365 challenge by visiting the website, and remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a beat.